0: Hello, I'm Dan Jurgen, and welcome to CIRA Week Conversations presented by IHS Markit. I'm very pleased to be talking today with Marco Alvera, who is CEO of SNAM, which is one of the major European gas pipelines uh, based in uh, Italy, and also, as we'll find in this conversation, very much at the forefront of a new hydrogen economy. Marco, welcome to CIRA Week Conversations. Thank you, Dan. So Marco, just to start us off uh, in a snapshot, just Sam, uh, Italian, European, just describe it. Describe the business.
1: SNAM is about a $30 billion company. We're uh, among the biggest pipeline businesses in the world with 40,000 kilometers. We also have a lot of uh, gas storage. Uh, We have about 700 BCF of gas storage underground. Our assets are mainly in Europe, but we've ventured out into the Middle East. We now have also offices in China, in India, and in the US. And we are working to not only get our own businesses to net zero, but we're working to help the world get to net zero. So we're investing in repurposing our gas pipelines to hydrogen pipelines and our storage to hydrogen and CO2 storage as well. So we'll get back to, we'll come to hydrogen in a few minutes, but let's
0: focus on gas for a minute. Uh, Your international businesses, China, Israel, Mediterranean gas. U.S. What what are, what are those businesses?
1: So we're in the infrastructure business. So we own pipelines. So for instance, uh, a few months ago, we took part in, in a successful bid to acquire a stake in a Adnox pipeline business in Abu Dhabi. These are the types of assets we've just completed with BP, the, southern, um, the final bit of the Southern Corridor, bringing gas all the way from Azerbaijan, uh, across Georgia, across Turkey, across Greece, across Albania, across the Adriatic Sea, all the way into Italy. Uh, So very big projects. Italy is a very interconnected market. We have gas pipelines coming in from Libya, coming in from Algeria through Tunisia, coming in from Russia in the the north, coming in from Norway. So Italy has a a big uh, quantity of pipelines. We've also bought the Greek uh, uh, gas grid, the company Despa, through a privatization. We bought from Total their assets in the south of France. So we kind of have our infrastructure stretching well into the Mediterranean, and now also in the Middle East and North Africa, and really looking to to move over into the U.S. as well.
0: Do you see, uh, well, let me ask you, do you see Middle East uh, gas, Eastern Mediterranean gas coming to Europe?
1: I, I think Middle Eastern gas is already coming to Europe, of course, through Qatar. Uh, we We do quite some work in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia as well. They have a very big plan for gas, but it's more about domestic gas. So I think as demographies in the Middle East grow, as CO2 becomes an issue globally, I think we're going to see a lot of oil to gas switch and a lot of domestic demand in, in Egypt and in North Africa. They have a lot of uh, demographic growth and they have a lot of increasing demand in their own countries.
0: Is it is it too soon to have an opinion about Eastern
1: Mediterranean gas I think there is certainly gas there as that's been proven by recent discoveries. There's uh, a lot of work underway. I think this boom and bust uh, commodity cycle makes it difficult for oil companies to continue to explore uh, for new gas, which is something that actually might be needed, especially here around the Mediterranean.
0: Um, What about in the U.S.? What are you doing
1: there? I think the U.S. is, uh, is a market that will be blessed with opportunities when it comes to renewable energy and and hydrogen and and uh, renewable natural gas which is made from biomethane and biogas i think there's uh we're really at the tipping point and and it's it's all about to happen with the cost of renewable energy coming down the new uh, successful parts of the world are those with a lot of wind a lot of sand a lot of sand for deserts to put solar panels a lot of land uh, a lot of uh, capabilities and competences and ideally with not too many uh, rules and regulations holding back investment. so I think the U.S. takes a lot of boxes uh, when it comes to the energy transition.
0: Um, you talked about boom and bust in energy cycles we're certainly seeing I guess you'd call it a boom right now or uh, at least uh, uh, some would call it a European gas crisis. Uh, how do you how do you interpret what's happening in Europe now? How did it come about and how do you think it's going to pan out?
1: I think it's much more than European. I think it's a kind of non-US and non-Russia crisis. So it's a crisis for all the people who are buying LNG. LNG has become the price setter. And so all those countries relying on LNG, their prices tend to be aligned right now. And what happened is that China's been building a lot of demand uh, during the COVID period. So we woke up from COVID with not only the post pandemic growth in the industry, but a lot of homes in China have switched from coal to gas. And so China has added a market almost the size of the UK over the last three years. At the same time, Europe has diminished its own production by let's say a quarter of the size of the UK, almost, almost 20 uh, BCM over three year period. And so you have this decline in domestic production, this stability in kind of conventional supplies coming out of Russia and Norway, and a big growth, unexpected growth by many in China. And when the market gets, tight, so tight with the demand exceeding supply, prices really skyrocket. And storages aren't full, which is not good looking at the winter ahead. And storages aren't being full because the market is in a backwardation, which means the forward prices are way below the current prices. So no trader wants to put money underground today at today's prices. And we've had a very cold April, which is always the month that really matters for starting the storage season. It was cold here and it was cold in Russia as well. So uh, a lot of the demand for gas is in the northern hemisphere and we use a lot of natural gas for heating. And so it's uh, becoming a very seasonal uh, commodity because everyone wants it in the winter. When it's cold, it tends to be cold for everyone at the same time. No one really consumes it in the summer, maybe with the exception of the Middle East, increasingly so for for air conditioning reasons as they switch from oil power generation to gas. So it's it's a very cyclical market. And the bottom line is that we need a lot more storage. We haven't been investing enough in storage. The UK is very short of storage. Uh, Italy is in a good position, but Germany and the Netherlands have very low inventories. And so what always strikes me is we have a lot of strategic petroleum reserves. We have a lot of strategic oil reserves that countries control, but we don't have, uh, in, in most countries, we don't have any strategic gas reserves. And when you look at natural gas and, and, and that kind of demand and price elasticity, it's really hard to think about a shortage of gas. You can't really curtail heating. Uh, You really get into serious trouble there. So the winter is is gonna be tricky. If it's a warm winter, everything's fine. If it's a very cold winter, um, I think there there will be issues that we will have to deal with. And this obviously becomes a political issue
0: as well as a
1: economic and
0: human issue. And uh, governments will get involved and do things
1: Governments uh, have already uh, gotten involved in the UK. The, the taxpayer, the government had to essentially bail out or support, not bail out, but subsidize uh, some some producers of ammonia that were indirectly producing CO2 that was necessary for the food chain and for the nuclear industry and for hospitals. And so it, it's very unusual to see the UK government step in and just subsidize uh, in, the, in a period of two days, uh, big actually US, US business. In Italy, the government committed 3 billion euros to help uh, reduce the impact of rising prices especially on the more vulnerable part of the population so if you have uh, poor people in cold places and prices increasing by 100% uh, then there's really some social issues that politicians have to deal with is the
0: um, is the storage issue a lack of incentives and regulation regulation signals to encourage more storage or, i mean obviously you're very focused on it and uh, as a company, um, how did this happen?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're, we're one of the biggest storage companies in the world. We're lucky to have in Italy a great regulation, the same, similar to what we have in France. So you have a regulated asset and you offer capacity to traders at a fixed price, which is quite low. And then they're incentivized to fill it up with cheap summer gas so they can take that cheap summer gas out in the winter. If you have a merchant system like you have in Germany, When you have such volatile markets, no one's really going to take the risk to put their money in a bank and not know how much it's going to be worth when they have to take it out in a few months. So uh, we are very much in favor, at least for some amount of of kind of baseload storage. It should be regulated. It should be mandatory. It should be strategic, exactly like we have for oil, exactly like we have for, you know, after World War II, every country made it mandatory to have strategic petroleum reserves. And then you have in times of, of an oil crisis, you have governments who can tap into those reserves and and free up inventory and has a, a positive impact on uh, on prices as well.
0: So is this uh, do you think after this winter that will happen that governments will see the need? to?
1: Uh, there's some stuff that, Yeah, there's some work we can do also before this winter. It's uh, it's quite quick. Uh, we can fill up storages quite quickly if we got the right incentive. So there could well be a package at the European level where they say, okay, let's buy more gas. This is, I think, a Spanish idea. You know, let's buy more gas at the European level. Let's have some kind of consortium of buyers just buy it and store it. And then the, the beautiful thing about gas like oil is that you can keep it there for, you know, a season, a year, a decade. You don't, you don't need to worry about it. So you can just store it there. It's not going to lose any value. You can. That's right. You can store it till you need it. <laughs> Until you yeah, need it. Absolutely. Um, Looking
0: long-term uh, as you have to, and as CEO Sam, what do you see as the role of natural gas in the energy transition?
1: I think we need a lot of natural gas. If I look at a country like Germany, they, they are essentially today running on nuclear, running on coal, running on diesel, and for different reasons have decided to abandon nuclear, abandon coal, and diminish significantly diminish their share of, of diesel. And so they need to rely on gas, And eventually to get to net zero, they need to replace that gas with renewable gases, which is going to be a combination of biomethane and blue hydrogen and green hydrogen. And so really, uh, if I take that as an example, uh, we need gas to manage the volatility in renewables. One of the reasons why gas prices are so high is also because we've been missing something like 20 gigawatts of wind just in the UK, just compared to last year. And so all you need is a year or a season or a week or a month with no wind or maybe no wind and no sun. And then you need to have that energy stored underground uh, somewhere uh, to be taken out. If you're, if you're in California, you can, you can essentially manage with uh, solar, wind and batteries because you're really just catering for kind of, you know, the hours when you don't have the sun. Uh, but if you're in the East Coast of the U.S. or here in Europe, we consume six times more energy in the winter than we do in the summer. and That energy today is all natural gas. It's all stored inventory natural gas. So we need to keep that as an inventory and then we need to decarbonize it by using CCS, by turning it into blue hydrogen or, or green hydrogen. So with gas, gas is partly its role then in the energy transition,
0: which you're really saying a very fundamental role in terms of reliability and resilience to the system.
1: Balance. Flexibility, balance, yeah.
0: Um, So uh, Marco, earlier in your career, you were, um, uh, before you got into energy, you were a tech uh, entrepreneur. So you're, and you saw things coming down the road maybe before others did, and you acted on it rather successfully, as I understand. Uh, You've been at the forefront and seeing uh, hydrogen uh, as part, as a very important part. How has your thinking evolved? How did you get how did your thinking get here on hydrogen? I mean, I have to mention you have a new book called The Hydrogen Revolution, a Blueprint for the Future of Clean Energy. So how did Marco Alvera come to these ideas?
1: Well, in, in 2000, I was, uh, I was doing cloud computing. That was maybe too, too much ahead of time. So I hope this time I'm not so far ahead. You're I, a really, visionary. <laughs> I, I really think we're on the cusp of it happening. In 2004, I was working in NL. I was head of strategy in NL and I get sent to a a hydrogen conference in Japan. And I came back thinking, amazing technology, it will never work, because it was costing 70 times more than oil. So we had oil at $30, and we had hydrogen at $1,000 per megawatt hour. And I stayed with that mindset, beautiful idea, will never work. Too narrow, because they were only talking about putting it into cars, and wildly expensive. Then in this office, this is my office in Milan, uh, four years ago, Uh, Camilla Palladino and her team, they run strategy here in SNAM. They come into my office. We were looking at a 2050 fully decarbonized uh, Europe. And they say, we have 20% of hydrogen in the energy mix. I say, no, let's redo the the maths. This is clearly not going to happen. Hydrogen is too expensive. will never work. And we went through the Excel. We ordered pizza because I was intrigued. It was late at night. So we stayed here a few hours. We went line by line through their model, which is quite a simple model that's reproduced in in the book, uh, which basically shows that solar went from $1,000 a megawatt hour all the way down to basically 30 today. In Saudi Arabia, the last auction was $10 a megawatt hour. But what no one really has has or had focused on is that the electrolyzers, the machine that you need to make turn solar energy and water into hydrogen, essentially by splitting water uh, with with current running through uh, a membrane, the these, these kits are essentially handmade. They are uh, a niche industry, very small volumes, no factories, no standardization. And so what we did is we interviewed all the electrolyzer manufacturers and we uh, launched a global conference in Rome three years ago. We, we brought everyone in from, from China, from, from Europe, from the US. We had 80 companies, most of the world's biggest energy and transport companies were there. And we basically discovered that if you standardize production, you can get costs really low. And so what we created for the COP26, and right, right now we're in Milan with the pre-COP, uh, because the COP is is the, the, the UN Climate conference is, is run by Italy and the UK together. We have offered to uh, the COP what we call the Moonshot. Uh, we've organized ourselves with uh, several other companies, including Iberdrola, Yara, Orsted, and Vision of China, AquaPower of of Saudi uh, to commit to making green hydrogen in five years cost competitive with a $50 oil, which means getting it to from $120 a megawatt hour today all the way down to $50. When we presented this to the Department of Energy, they ran their own numbers. And as you know, they came out with the Earth shot, which is to make it cost competitive with coal by the end of the decade, which is twenty-five dollars a megawatt hour or two dollars a kilo. Now that really is the end game, because if you get it to twenty-five bucks a megawatt hour, that's the only way we can convince India and China and Asia to stop building new coal plants and to kind of switch directly from from coal to hydrogen, which is, I think, very good news for the planet and and very good business for the industry.
0: So, what do you think? Um, you know, from here to there, is this something that happens? years or five years
1: I mean, how long is yeah. the shot <laughs> yeah I, I i think in five years we can get it there uh in in the book uh and in our study in our model working with all these producers we came up with 25 gig 25 gigawatt of electrolyzer demand is the number that gets these entrepreneurs to build the factories and factories to bring down the costs the iea has said that they reckon the world will have 850 gigawatts of electrolyzers. So we're really undershooting it in our book. We're not right. being ambitious enough. What will, what needs to happen are a few things. On it, it, it sounds a little boring, but it's incredibly important. We need the world, and hopefully this will begin to happen at the G20 here in Italy and then at the COP. We need the world to agree on what blue hydrogen means because there's no point talking about blue hydrogen if you have different standards. It can mean anything. If you have a lot of methane leakage in your infrastructure, then of course it's very polluting uh, blue hydrogen. If you're not capturing at least 90 to 95 or even more percent of the CO2, it doesn't really mean much. So the first point is to define what we mean by green, what we mean by blue, because once we have a molecule, we have no idea where it comes from. With oil and gas, we can send send it into a lab and almost accurately figure out exactly which reservoir it came from, but hydrogen is gonna be identical. Uh, and so we need to be sure of what it means. We need to define- so Do
0: you, do you want to focus on why those what the two definitions are in your Absolutely. mind and why they're
1: important? Yeah, so uh, there's, a, there's a debate going on in many countries, especially here in Europe, uh, between the blue hydrogen, which is made from natural gas with CCS. So removing carbon from methane. Methane is CH4. You split the methane with a meth- methane reformer and you take the CO2, and you store it underground. That's blue. Green is made from solar and wind and hydro, whatever renewable energy there is. Then you have pink uh, made from nuclear yeah. energy. And then you have- we don't, why,
0: we don't know why it's pink. It should be yellow, but
1: go ahead. <laughs> be, I, I know, I've, I've said that before. Um, and then we have turquoise made with pyrolysis, and we have other colors. Right. We have gray, of course, which is made from methane without the CCS, so without the yeah. carbon. We have black made from coal so a lot of colors all these colors will produce the exact same molecule so we need to track it and make sure there's standards decided and there's a regulator uh, who can really make sure they know uh, what we're talking about where it's coming oh, so from. Where, do,
0: where do you come out on blue versus green
1: look if blue is proper which means no methane emissions or very limited kind of zero point something percent methane emissions and if we can capture 95 or more percent of the CO2, then I think it's a great product. Uh, And I think countries like Germany will need a lot of it. I think countries like the UK are already banking on it. I think Russia will be producing blue and sending it through the Nord Stream 2 eventually. I still don't know if it's going to be methane through the pipe and then the CCS done uh, at the delivery point or the CCS done before. The beautiful thing is that we can use the existing gas pipelines to transport pure hydrogen. This has been proven and tested by the DOE, by a lot of uh, regulators and experts.
0: If I can jump in there, that's a very important point because, as you know, in the United States, there's a lot of opposition to to new natural gas pipelines. But if you think those pipelines can also be used to move hydrogen, it kind of changes the debate.
1: Yes, people are using um, pipelines as an excuse to basically squeeze and, 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 and not not allow upstream projects to, to get developed, whether it's a keystone, whether it's a gas pipeline. Once uh, people realize these are forever infrastructure, right? Once I've, once I've connected uh, tech, the deserts of Texas with the East Coast, with the hydrogen pipeline, that is like a Roman road we have here in Italy that's lasting for thousands of years. I mean, we're going to have to replace the steel in the pipe but that route is a forever infrastructure. Once the sun and the factory are put into connection, uh, there's no going back. So this is not the energy transition. This is the kind of the forever uh, fuel. And so these pipelines, people will will really rush to get them approved. There's a there's a first mover advantage as, as countries and states in the U.S. will compete to take on market share. And I suspect these pipelines, which is our core business, will uh, have the acceptance that you know, fiber optic cables have or water pipelines have because people like them. Let me ask you, uh, if you compare hydrogen to
0: natural gas as a fuel, which you had to do for your book, uh, The Hydrogen Revolution, compare hydrogen to natural gas, which is better as a
1: fuel? Natural gas is better better because it's more dense. You can store it more easily. You can transport it more easily. It's less flammable. Uh, It's safer. Uh, And uh, uh, the problem is it has CO2. And so we're either going to be taking the CO2 out of the natural gas. And I'm also a big fan of just CCS in general. So in in the future, we will have a natural gas pipeline or maybe a biomethane pipeline. We will have a hydrogen pipeline and we will have a CO2 pipeline because some utilities will continue to use gas in their turbines and it will be cheaper for them to take the CO2 out of the uh, turbine than to convert it all to hydrogen. But there's a lot of optionality. depends what infrastructure is already in place. But really, the good news is that we can use the same infrastructure, we can use the same skills, we can convert fossil companies to hydrogen uh, companies without uh, too much effort, because it's it's less energy dense, it's harder to to deal with, because it has a wider range of of flammability. But it's not so different from natural gas. And we used to have hydrogen in the cities here in Europe, city gas was essentially hydrogen gas coming to really, people's homes.
0: Really? So uh, let me just ask you two other big questions. One is uh, the $86 uh, trillion dollar world economy runs 80% on hydrocarbons now. How long do you think it takes to, in terms of scale, to create a really hydrogen industry? I mean, I know this is a guess on your part, you know, to get to scale, to get the engineering done, to get the things built. Um, as opposed to scenarios. Now, I don't want to ask you to go out on a limb, but just you know your thoughts as, as an industrialist.
1: No, I, I when when I this is my third book. When I wrote the first book, which was three years ago, um, which is already significantly out of date because the costs have been falling faster. There was no talk of hydrogen in the industry and of, of big volumes of hydrogen in the industry. And if I took anyone's long-term reports, uh, it just didn't show up. Today, if I take the IEA, if I take Bloomberg, if I take Goldman Sachs, if I take Credit Suisse, if I take um, the IRENA, which is the International Renewable Energy Association, they kind of all agree. There's there's an incredible consensus. They all agree that we'll get to 50% electrification, up from 20%. And that has to be all green in 2050 for, a let's say, a net zero world. And the remaining 50%, which is going to be impossible to electrify or, or incredibly expensive to electrify, which are the hard to abate sectors, the shipping sector, aviation, heating when it comes to this kind of winter, uh, storing kind of six times more energy in the winter than in the summer. These will be molecules. And these will be molecules will be uh, either oil and gas without CO2, so with CCS. These will be biomolecules, so biomass and biomethane, and these will be hydrogen or hydrogen derivatives. It's going to be like oil that you have. You're going to have a lot of derivatives: ammonia, um, liquid hydrogen, gases hydrogen. And so, of that 50% of molecules that people hadn't really focused on until we really focus on a net zero scenario, and I think all these studies really say similar things. Hydrogen is going to be between 15 and 25%, and the rest is going to be oil without CO2 maybe even coal without CO2 for a period of time. Uh, direct air capture as well is going to be very important, and, well, and biomass.
0: Let me ask you one last question, and then I'm going to make one point at the end. But the last one, geopolitics of hydrogen. Will it be interesting? Will it be dramatic, or will it be just a business?
1: No, I think it's going to be uh, not dramatic and very interesting. Uh, in your brilliant book, The Map, you, you lay out the impact of the shale revolution around the world and touching on some of the key geopolitical nodes. I think hydrogen is going to add to that. If you If you look at the map of renewable resources, solar and wind, that's going to drive the future prosperity. So we're going to have 2 billion people uh, added into the population, mainly in China, 70% of new children are going to be born in China. They will need to build dozens of cities with 5 or 10 million people living in them, a lot of steel, a lot of cement. Um, And so the prospect of using the Sahara to produce renewable hydrogen to give to sub-Saharan countries, which is where a bulk of the growth is coming from uh, in terms of new energy demand and and where we need to bring people electricity. A lot of people still are without the right access to energy. But that Sahara desert can also supply the the North so we can bring it into Europe. The Middle East is a first mover. There's talks of um, the Middle East wanting to build a hydrogen pipeline. From, from Saudi all the way uh, into across the Mediterranean into, uh, into Europe. Uh, and because if you look at that map of where the wind, and spe- especially the solar resources that are gonna be cheaper, of where those resources are, it's, it's very evenly spread around the world, around the tropics. And so compared to oil, which was only really where the big rivers were, so Gulf of Mexico, West, West, West Africa, Middle East, um, um, we now have a completely new map of energy, and where there's cheap sun and cheap wind, ideally both cheap sun and cheap wind, that's where the new factories will be, the new data centers will be, the new steel mills will be, um, and, and as a byproduct of, of all this cheap energy, we'll have cheap water. So there's also the opportunity to really work on nature-based solutions uh, to bring it. So I think it's going to really, really ease the geopolitical tensions. And the U.S. is coming out as a clear winner once again, because it has it all. Right, so
0: Marco, uh, as a um, author, I would not be doing my job if I did not at least give you an opportunity to tell people about the hydrogen revolution uh, and where the book is available, because uh, it brings so much thinking and thought that you've done over the last four years onto it. And I'm doing what you're supposed to do, holding up the cover.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Dan. That's very kind. The book's out already in the UK. It's coming out in November in the US. You can find it on amazon.co.uk. Just the 15 second point is if we can get clarity and conviction uh, around hydrogen, green hydrogen costing $2 a kilo, which is $50 a megawatt hour, which is cheaper than a $50 oil in five years. And then all the way down to $1 a kilo, which is $25 a megawatt hour, cheaper than coal by the decade, then that's it. That's that's kind of the revolution happened because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if people start factoring in these numbers into their models and start using them to make their investment decisions. And as you mentioned, there's so much capital out there that this is not, it's no longer about the costs of the energy transition. It's about the huge opportunity to convert that 86 trillion economy that you talked about into something bigger and grander, really starting from the skills and the infrastructure that we already have uh, in place.
0: Right, well, thank you very much, uh, Marco Alvera, for talking with us about uh, natural gas, the current crisis or crunch in Europe, uh, the solutions to it. And then of course, discussing hydrogen, which you have uh, uh, certainly put a great deal of thought and analysis into it and leadership on it. And sharing uh, what you really describe in the title of your book as a hydrogen revolution and how it can come about. So, we appreciate you joining us very much for this SEER Week conversation.
1: Thank you, Dan. I really enjoyed this talk. Hope Thank to you. see you soon. Thanks. Thank you.